As we come back together, we are uh, looking through the book of Acts at, uh, at how the gospel transforms cultural understandings, empowers the church to be something that it's never been before, uh, in a way in which first a city is transformed and challenged, and now as we begin to see an entire region will be transformed by the implications, the outworking of the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection. That God is transforming a world that has been mired in death and brokenness and sin and something really changed when Jesus rose again. I, uh, I sometimes reflect on the fact that if you read the Old Testament, uh, there is one way to read it where it is relentingly, unrelentingly, Depressing. God sets up one great man or woman after another and they get to a certain point and then the power of sin causes them to fail or falter. That you read the book of Judges and it's 20 years at a pop before they turn back to their idolatry and their sin. All of the rules about when you can come into worship and how it seems like sneezing can make you unclean Death and decay and uncleanness are ever-present. You can't hardly get through the day without becoming, if you will, ceremonially unclean and unable to enter the presence of God. And so you're constantly aware of the separation between us and the divine. And it seems to have no end and no hope. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And he starts touching things that are unclean. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, he stays clean and their leprosy is cured. That he dispatches the spirits with power. That they recognize him and fear. That he speaks with power in such a way that even the most scholarly and astute individuals are challenged both by the simplicity and the complexity of his words. The fact that truth at some times is not hard to understand. It's just terrifying to apply because it's going to unravel so many things that in my life I've made complicated as a defense mechanism. Bending the knee isn't complicated, but my stars is it hard. To acknowledge that I need a Savior, that I need an entire new world order to structure my very existence is a humbling thing to let into my head and into my heart. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, we see in the apostles preaching and what we saw in Peter is all of history to that point, redemptive history, all that God was doing, come to a point and say, this happened, and because this really happened, the person you thought was weak and broken stood up after three days, and the power of God transformed, and therefore now what we know is that not only was it just when Jesus touched people that life spread, but that life by the Holy Spirit is given to us, and that's why you can understand us, and that's why the world is going to be transformed and people's lives were changed. It was no longer going to be the way it had always been. 
And so as we deal with the implications of this revolution against death and evil and inappropriate power and all of the perversities we see in the Old Testament that still to this day cling on and yet there is something different. We do stand in a day and age in which many of the sins and evils that were accepted as normal are viewed as inappropriate. The understanding of human life, its dignity, the fact that we live in a short 2,000 years after the resurrection in a world that for thousands of years human beings could never have imagined, not just technologically, but even morally and ethically. It is different. Life has spread at a rate that is breathtaking in the expanse of human history. And so we don't want to become overly confident, but we also don't want to become depressed as there are ebbs and flows in every culture and society, that it's not an inexorable rise to greatness, that there are the plagues and there are foolish and horrible and profane wars, and there are all manner in which sin and brokenness still desire to hold some measure of control, but they're losing their grip in ever greater degrees. And so we see this morning in another text, another indication of the grip of sin and death being broken. It's breaking out of Jerusalem and fulfilling the expectation as Jesus laid out before he ascended that they would take the good news of the gospel, the revolutionary news of the gospel, to Jerusalem, Judea, and now Samaria before the ends of the earth. But let's put this text in front of us. It is uh, Ro Romans. <coughs> is that just a re Presbyterian reflex? <laughs> we must be reading out of Romans. No, uh, actually, um, Acts. Uh, and we'll read chapter four, uh, verse 4 through 25. Uh, hear now God's word. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simeon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the other uh, all the people of Samaria he boasted that he was someone great and all the people both high and low gave him their attention and exclaimed this man is the divine power known as the great power they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic but they believed philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Uh, Simeon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he, was, he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name 
of the Lord Jesus. When Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they uh, then they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, when Simeon, Simon saw the Spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also the ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may also receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is bent. It is not right before God. Repent of the wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive you in having uh, such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful in the preaching of your word. We ask that in this narrative, Lord, we might see again the joy, the hope of the kingdom of God, and that we might again be reminded that your word goes forth and that it does so. It transforms. And we pray that we would be transformed. Whatever is said here, Lord, this morning that is not true, that is not useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So, in the spirit of being led by the Holy Spirit, sometimes I have to fill out things so that they can get printed in the worship folder before uh, I, I actually finish all of my thoughts. And so the title of this morning's sermon is The Holy Spirit's Not for Sale, which seems to be a perfectly relevant uh, title to the text. But as I kept chewing on the text, that's not really what I want to talk about. What strikes me in this text is that Yes, there is a misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit work, how the Holy Spirit works and the, the, the nature of power that is regularly true in human existence. But I want to talk this morning about this idea that the whole city was filled with joy. That if you notice that text, as they begin to see and notice the kingdom of God breaking out, as they hear the good word, as people are transformed, the city in which Philip is ministering is filled with joy. And the reason I want to focus on that this morning is that I was listening to some lectures by a scholar, and his comment was this. It was that the Jewish faith was marked off by hope. The hope of the coming Messiah. And that the Christian faith and the Gospels and the New Testament is marked off by joy. And these are not mutually exclusive, but as far as emphasis on a particular syllable, right, or syllable, we, we have these differences of emphasis. And so the Jewish hope was this, this prayer <coughs> and this expectation that a Messiah would come and that life would begin to spread. And they hoped for it. And it was a sure hope because God was leading them and He provided kings and He had the temple. They had a sure hope. It wasn't pie in the sky. It was a sure hope. They knew it would happen. They just didn't know when. And the Christian hope is marked off by joy because the hope of the nations has come in Christ. 
And therefore, what permeates the Christian life and the ethos of the early church, and Lord willing, us in ever greater degrees, is joy itself. Joy itself. <coughs> Excuse me. So, how is that? That we can then emphasize joy. And what are the implications of emphasizing joy over hope? What are the potential implications of that for us? So I want to look at the text in light of this expectation that, that the Christian faith is marked off by joy, a sure understanding of hope. And certainly we look forward to the Lord's return, and that is a hope. So I don't want anybody to, to get from this that EC has declared war on hope in the name of joy. It is, in fact, simply a desire to unpack the implications of the joy that the Samaritans felt and that the early church felt and that the church has felt throughout the ages as they have seen the Spirit move and the transforming power of the kingdom of God. So, how does this transition from mostly hope with some joy to great joy in the assurance and the hope that has already been fulfilled. First of all, uh, what, do, <coughs> what do we see? We see that Philip heads off under persecution. You would not believe how much ink is spilled about that little issue, whether the persecution moved the church out, but I shall avoid going into those details. But Philip ends up in Samaria, and we know Samaria is a significant place, right? Jesus has already made certain forays into it. We know in John that Jesus had had this amazing interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well and that her town <coughs> had been already prepared uh, for somebody like Philip coming. We don't know which city Philip goes to, but that a Samaritan village had already been transformed by the power of Jesus because this woman had met a man who told her everything she'd ever done and she'd felt free and she'd known God's love and there was hope and life and she believed him to be the Messiah. Now there's some scholarly debate as to whether the Samaritans, because they believed the Pentateuch but did not include the historical books or the, or the, the wisdom literature or the prophetical books, understood the Messiahship aspect. But Philip preaches Jesus as Messiah and Jesus himself revealed himself to the woman at the well as the Messiah. What we do know is that their primary emphasis was certainly out of Deuteronomy, an understanding of a prophet who would come, who would fulfill all of the implications. They longed for true and right prophets who would point them to the kingdom of God and assure them and educate them and let them know the goodness of God. They had been distanced from the Jewish people. They had been a pariah. And so for God to send prophets to them, true prophets, was seen as a restorative act, an act of reconciliation, something they longed for because of their understanding and knowledge of those first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. And so here's Philip, a prophet, speaking as a prophet and acting as a prophet. Yes, he's an evangelist, but in their mindset, he fulfills this image of a prophet who would be sent, a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. 
pointing to <coughs> the greater prophet. Or I need some water. Sorry, I usually don't need water. But Ben didn't cure me, so. I am brutal. You would never want to be the doctor of a pastor and then sit in his congregation. He just, the good thing he's got a sense of humor. All right, good. So, back to the thought. So Philip shows up. He preaches the Christ. And then he also has, as is often true of some of the great prophets, the ability to do great signs. And so we see healings and the implications of the kingdom and all of these ways in which Philip comes into this community, into this culture, and speaks to their needs and their hopes and their expectations. And as they see those hopes fulfilled in the promise of a Christ who's come, in the resurrection as preached by Philip, and the power of the Spirit manifested in healings, and the throwing out of evil and evil spirits from their cities, there is joy that something has been accomplished, that it has come. Joy happens when we recognize the fulfillment of God's promises. It is going to be different than happiness, which is usually based on the moment-by-moment events. But the church comes out with joy, preaching joy, even in persecution. Notice Philip is still pretty optimistic, even though things are going rather poorly in Jerusalem. He preaches a Jesus enthroned with power, despite momentary setbacks in the presence of persecution. And he can go with power into the Samaritan village and say, Our God reigns, and here is the manifestation of it by the Holy Spirit. And people believed. Even the, even the magician certainly believed in the power. Now we'll talk about the misunderstanding in a moment. But the joy that comes from a prophet. I'm amazed, you know, we, we think about uh, some of the great musical pieces like Handel's Messiah. When Jesus comes and when the resurrection happens, you know, what is the great chorus that we all sing, right? It's the hallelujah chorus, a celebration of that reality. It fills us with joy. Uh, I'm fond of, of the, uh, the little uh, choral piece uh, that reflects on the great passage. Um, great, oh, now I'm going to butcher it. Uh, see, I'm asking Anna, she's not ready. God gave the word, and great was the company of the preachers. God gave the word, the word made flesh. In Jesus, great was the company of those who wanted to tell the good news of the gospel to the entire world. And so they go out in joy because of this ultimate assurance, and it brings power. It brings transformation to this community. It is joy and the ability to say it is finished. Jesus said it is finished. And there is a truth to that. There has to be. To know that those things have been set right. That the truth has come. And that death is now being driven back. It is the fulcrum in which all history moves. And Philip preaches that fulcrum, preaches that power, and God blesses. So how is that often confused then with happiness? And I think this is where we can 
uh, learn a little bit from our brother Simon. Uh, at least we hope we believe our brother Simon who believed. But he was, he was confused. He believes in verse 18. He is seeing the power. He's seeing the movement. He's attracted to it. He himself has been powerful. He's had a position of leadership. Uh, he has known that there is real spiritual power, that that has practical implications in the world around him. And so he wants to know this power. And initially he believes. He believes in this power. He believes uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not unpacked in great deal, but he believes. The challenge is that he, he sees it on a rather temporal basis, right? Because what he wants is the power, verse 20. And so he sees it, he's attracted to it, he's baptized, but as soon as he thinks the power may be available for franchisement, he wants to know how he can get into the franchise. He wants that power for himself, and that's where the misunderstanding of the purpose and the origin of the power is shown in his clearest misunderstanding. His heart is still not right. The, the, the actual verb there uh, in 8.21 is that it is crooked. It's bent in the wrong direction. His heart is not straight. It's crooked. He needs a new heart. And we've talked many, many times about how it is our hearts in the Bible that determine everything else around us. It's not the enlightenment notion of the mind. It is... The heart is the seat of actual thought because it, it perceives, it loves, it looks at the world through its own needs and wants and fears and desires. And to the degree that our hearts stay bent, we cannot help but perceive the things of God as a means to our happiness. They become the, the, the means to temporal happiness. So how can I get God to bless me? I love this. I love the power. I love Jesus to reign. All of this sounds good. Is the practical implication then a measure of safety, security, magic for my life? Come to Jesus, your life will be fixed. And then most of us who've known Jesus for a while would say, well, no, that's actually not all that true. It's a process. It ain't magical. Uh, it is different than you might expect. And so I want to suggest that to the degree that our hearts find ourselves skipping back and forth between happiness and depression in the moments of our life where we have prayed that God would give us the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might have the ability to either bless ourselves or bless others, and to so do so that we might feel happy and in some measure in control of our lives, that we've seen the glory, we believed in it, and yet our hearts are still bent and we're trying to use it for our own ends. That's the temptation that Simon falls into. Philip has left Jerusalem under persecution and is giving the gospel with a free hand with little or no thought to what happens tomorrow. But he knows the joy of the Lord even in the midst of fleeing from persecution. It's not his circumstances, it's the reality of who God is that transforms Philip's ability to administer the gospel and the truth, and Simon's challenge with his heart still bent 
in seeing God as a means to his own end, to his own happiness. Happiness is fleeting because happiness is based on our current circumstances. Joy transcends even the worst of times because it is built on the eternal realities of what has changed. To be joyful in all seasons is opportunity uh, because our hearts are now transformed to understand what is ultimately and eternally true and how power actually works. It works through humility and brokenness, not through power and status. There's no way that Simon's construction of how the world works is going to be uh, fit into the power of the kingdom of God. And it's why the Holy Spirit doesn't come. Doesn't come on him, the scripture says. Doesn't mean that it never did. What it means is at that moment with his heart and his desire, he was not willing to bend the knee. He wanted God for his own ends, for his own status, for his own power, even though it was portrayed as benevolent so he could help people, but so he could help people. It's interesting that even in this passage, there's a way in which Philip's power is mitigated. He has to have the disciples come and pray for the Holy Spirit. Now again, that is a complicated issue that I'm not going to open up at uh, 7 minutes after 12, 11. That's scary. Noon. Time change. Um, but there's even a way in which Philip's power is limited. Or at least the appearance of his power. Because it takes the apostles to show up before the Holy Spirit is given. Now we know in other passages, the Holy Spirit is given without any laying on of the hands. Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and just in preaching, the Holy Spirit comes on people. And then he says, shouldn't we baptize them? The problem with reading Acts as a normative way in which baptism and the Holy Spirit are connected is that you will never get a good answer. God seems to be doing different things at different moments to make sure what we all understand is that He is in charge and His Spirit blows where it wills. But in this moment, what happens is that Philip is given amazing powers to preach the gospel. He's given the power to actually heal people in the name of Jesus Christ. And yet when he baptizes them, the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon them. There is a measure of weakness and restraint in his own ministry. He becomes dependent upon the apostles to come and to pray and to give the Holy Spirit. There is a way in which the delight of the Lord to use all of his people to show that He is really the one who is sovereign and in power. There is no magical incantation. There is no formula by which human beings begin to distribute the goodness of God. We simply become agents led by the Spirit into those places where He would have us serve. So, A couple of takeaways from the end of the, se- from the sermon, if we can. First, how does joy fit into your life? Again, in this time and in this moment where there seems to be, at least from the, the, the feeling, a lot of upheaval, right? That usually robs happiness. But joy, joy goes deeper. Joy is an assurance of who really reigns. 
and the reflection that death and sin have been defeated. And therefore, the economic trends, the tragedies of uh, it feeling like in certain ways, the, the respect and honor of the alien at the gate has changed. And how does the church interact with that? How do we care for those who are different? The fact that certain powers and certain uh, uh, ethics that the Bible clearly speaks against and lifestyle seem to be more accepted. All of these ways in which we can see that there is more room for the kingdom of God to spread in our own day and age can give us the sense that maybe the kingdom is failing. It is not failing. He got up. The tomb is empty. The spirit has been poured out. Lives are transformed. Is that your joy? It is regularly not mine. I need your encouragement. I look at the circumstances in my life, in my children's lives, in those that I know in this congregation who go through difficult times and I am easily robbed of happiness and I think that's a robbing of my joy because I see the pain and brokenness and you know it too. It is calling one another back to Jesus as the Christ, what Stephen saw, seated at the right hand of the Father and moving out in the confidence that these momentary swings, ethically, morally, peace, economics, do not speak to the eternal reality of the kingdom of God or the power of Christ. And we can be generous in times when everyone else becomes miserly with grace, forgiveness, kinder words, and more peace, more confidence. Is it joy? The reason that I say we need more joy than hope is that sometimes hope makes us withdraw. Lord, we hope you will fix this. We hope that things will get better. And we withdraw because we're not confident when that may happen, but we have a hope that it will. But see, Philip goes out in power because his joy is the knowledge that it's happened and it needs to spread. Jewish people wrestled with being withdrawn their whole time of being the covenant people. That hope never made them overly adventurous in sharing the good news and being a blessing to all the nations. I want to encourage you that joy is a stronger motivation for spreading the gospel than hope could ever be. That it is the sureness of that hope fulfilled in Christ that gives that joy. And so whether it is in our personal lives as we wrestle with the reality of the gospel and the joy that should dwell in our hearts, that does dwell in our hearts by the Spirit, but is that then also diagnostically part of the challenge we face in triumphantly stepping into our communities and our schools and our work with the sure joy of the gospel, expecting that God will provide opportunity for us to share the good news of a Christ who reigns, to be the instruments of reconciliation, that maybe it isn't that somebody gets healed from their leprosy in our work, but we are the peacemakers who bring the words of wisdom and gospel into the midst of a conflict in our work or in our friends that brings healing and gospel that people didn't imagine could even happen between those folks. You can miraculously, by the power of Jesus, transform environments. 
by words of peace and the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't just have to be the mending of a bone, but the mending of a heart is far more powerful as the Lord works through your words and your actions, through the joy of what we have. God can and will do that, even in our very own little version of Samaria here. God can and will because he has already begun and it is finished. Take that hope, take that challenge, and may it bring you joy in all seasons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word, Lord God Almighty. And we ask again that as we come to this time of communion, that you would bless it, that we would know again the assurance of who you are. And Lord, we pray that we would be filled with joy as we gather around the wedding feast of the Lamb. In Christ's name, amen.